So, on, uh, on the morning of October 14th, 1987, uh, an 18-month-old girl named Jessica uh, McClure was playing in her aunt's backyard um, when she fell 22 feet down uh, a well. And it was a pretty, like, small hole. It was, like, 8 inches in diameter. And for the next 58 hours, um, our entire nation was transfixed as this drama played out. Uh, in fact, many point to CNN's coverage uh, of that as, uh, of Baby Jessica's rescue, as one of the turning points in history of uh, news coverage. It was one of the first times of, it kind of gave birth to the 24-hour uh, news cycle. First responders worked around the clock to save this little girl um, because she had fallen so deep into the earth uh, and the, the, uh, the la- there was layers of rock um, and they were, they were harder than granite and it took them forever to get, to get into them. Uh, it was extraordinarily difficult and all this was to save one uh, little girl. She was dubbed everyone's baby um, because she was the focus of millions of viewers. Thousands of strangers sent her family flowers, cards, money, uh, donations totaling, and the hundreds of thousands of dollars came in for this little girl and for the effort to save her. Mining experts, oil drillers, it was in West Texas, and so there were several of them there, um, and they, they all kind of came to the aid of this, this situation. Doctors, police officers, all sorts of people. They had crazy, some of them had crazy ideas on how to get her out, um, and uh, from all over the nation, they descended on Midland, Texas, uh, where this happened. And finally, on the, uh, on the evening of October 16th, 1987, baby Jessica was pulled out of that well. Um, the celebration was absolutely electric when they finally pulled this little girl out. Um, everyone cheered, cried, uh, breathed a sigh of relief as they uh, were waiting to see how this would end. And the paramedics attended to this little girl. And even that, the picture of, of the paramedic carrying this little girl won the Pulitzer Prize that year um, for, for this, this situation. And I think, as I thought about this passage that we're going to read tonight and, and look at, it, it, for, for whatever reason, this story came to my mind. Um, I think that we were all made to celebrate. I know this because we're made in the image of a God who celebrates. This evening's passage is one of the most beloved chapters in the whole New Testament. And um, it's one of the, the, uh, in which expectations are, are shattered Uh, and yet it describes a God that we're very familiar with. Um, It's one that makes plain what we are uh, to do and what matters most to God. Um, We'll see that He is both appealing and appalling. Um, We'll see that God is is relentless after that which is lost. Um, We will see that what matters most to God is the return uh, of that which He loves. And finally, we'll see what occasion for God is an occasion is fit for an occasion of celebration. I want us to see tonight that because Christ celebrates repentance, we must repent and celebrate. Um, I have three points if you're a note taker. Um, one is Jesus isn't what you expect. Second, Jesus is exactly what you would expect. And third is the ex- expected celebration. So, uh, if you turn in your program, uh, it's got the passage there in Luke 15. Um, you can open that up, or if you have your Bible, you can read along. Um, and uh, so, hear now uh, the Word of God. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. 
So he told him this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Let's pray. Lord, I, I do. I pray that your word would encourage us um, tonight, God. I pray that we would see... Um, your goodness, that you are a God who is relentless after the ones you love, and that we were at all, all of us in this room who would claim Christ, who were, were at one time that lost sheep that you relentlessly pursued. And I pray that the memory of that would be fresh in our, in our hearts, and that it would move us to deep prayer and thankfulness for you. It would move us to forgiveness of those around us, um, those grace abusers that that are all around us, God. And I pray that it would be a great reason to celebrate. I pray that the people in this congregation would be known as people who celebrate, that that have a peculiar sort of of joy um, that's ever-present in their life because they have been the objects of such great mercy. I pray this in the, the powerful name of Christ. Amen. So first is Jesus isn't what you'd expect. Um, we see in verse, verse 1 the issue that's at hand. The issue is there's tax collectors and, there's, and sinners were drawing near to Jesus. And this is coming on the hills of uh, Luke 14 where Jesus had some pretty hard-hitting truths there at the end uh, of Luke, Luke 14. And um, he, he concludes by saying, if you have verse, who, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Uh, evidently, these folks who were drawing near to Jesus had counted the cost and were, were attracted to Jesus. They wanted to hear more. Um, here was a teacher who accepted them and a society that often saw them as outcasts. Um, there was something magnetic about his presence. I can imagine a curiosity that existed. Uh, they had to be asking, how can this guy, this Jew, uh, Jewish teacher, uh, actually accept me, want me in his presence when I've been utterly uh, outcast by everyone else? Um, he, he not only acknowledged them, but he accepted them. And we see that by the claim that's leveled at Jesus by the Pharisees in the next verse. Uh, they charged Jesus with eating with tax collectors and sinners, which again meant he welcomed and recognized them. Um, but this wasn't a new thing for Jesus. This wasn't a new uh, charge that had been leveled against him. In, in Luke 5, earlier in the, the book, uh, we see that when he is calling, when Jesus is calling Matthew to be his disciple, the same, we get almost the exact same storyline that we have here in this passage. The Pharisees and scribes were frustrated uh, by who Jesus choose, chose to di- dine with. And likewise, Jesus speaks plainly to them in verse 32, 31 and 32. He says, Those who are well have no need of, of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. For Pharisees, Jesus' contact with such persons was unwise, it was defiling, um, it was illogical. 
these tax collectors were people who the Jews sought to avoid. Uh, tax collectors were traitors. They were sellouts. Uh, they, they, who had benefited from the taxation of their own people. How could this teacher allow such rotten folks into his presence? How his behavior was completely unexpected to what they uh, had thought. And for both, so for both the sinner and the saint, Jesus was unexpected. For one, he was curiously attractive. Uh, the fact that he would acknowledge them made no sense. And for the other, for the saint or the Pharisee, it made no sense that Jesus accepted that which was so unacceptable to the people of God. Um, when a couple summers ago, my wife and I got the opportunity to take some college students uh, to China, and um, we, it was evident that uh, by the way we packed for the trip that we had some expectations going into the, to this, this trip. Um, I think I thought I was going to be living like on the hillside of like the Great Wall of China or something. I went, I went to uh, J&H and got like brand new uh, hiking boots, you know, because I was like, oh, I'm just going to be in such rugged territory, you know, I want to have some hiking boots. Uh, I got uh, poison ivy soap, you know, I was like, didn't want to, you know, be without it all summer. I'll, you know, I'm deathly allergic. Uh, and I, uh, I went and got like two camping pads, you know, like I was going to be sleeping like on the ground or something. I don't, and so then my wife, she went to the store and she got, um, my wife Emily, uh, I think she knew we weren't camping, but she brought like a French press, a coffee maker, ibuprofen, peanut butter, plenty of candy bars. And uh, she didn't want us to get stuck over there, you know, for six weeks and not have the essentials. So, you know, we had all those, those things. And we soon found out that we actually weren't living on the Great Wall of China this, uh, that summer. And, um, you know, as crazy as it might sound, Chinese actually do have access to Advil, uh, coffee. Uh, they do have coffee. They also have Snickers. And so it, we, were, <laughs> we were in a modern city. Like, it wasn't, it wasn't like, uh, <laughs> you know, that we were in the middle of nowhere. And so whether we had voiced our expectations or not, we had expectations going into this, this trip. And I think we do this all the time in the way we relate to God. We have expectations that we've placed upon God. Um, the more we get to know Jesus, the more we'll see that he's oftentimes not what we expected. Um, we think he's going to fit into our categories, but more often than not, we're surprised. Um, we're surprised by either a new side of him that we never uh, had seen before, or, or we're surprised by how quickly we've forgotten um, the, the side of him that we had thought we knew. Um, we've, we've got to allow room for Jesus to reform our expectations of him. We must constantly ask him, who are you really? Lord, would you show me who you really are? Um, we've got to have room in our, our theology for those categories to be blown. Um, Jesus commends the tax collectors and the sinners for their curiosity. And, and he does that for us too. He commends us for, for our, our curiosity. They wanted to hear more. That was their posture before God. And we've got to pray for that same posture. We have to pray that we would, we would say, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. Help me to see you in a new way today. Um, because he's not what we expect in a lot of ways. Secondly, Jesus is exactly what you'd expect. Uh, continuing in verse 3, Jesus speaks plainly uh, to the charges leveled against him by telling him this parable. He says, so, so he told him this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country to go after the one that is lost until he finds it? 
We see that God, God's mode of operation hasn't changed. While both the Pharisee and the tax collector were surprised uh, by his behavior in the previous few verses, we see here the God we've always known. We see a God who is relentless. This God it pursues. And this God doesn't just react, He initiates. He's infatuated with His people. He's committed to them and to His glory. To not, not to be so would be antithetical to His very character. We see this attribute in God right from the very beginning. Uh, after Adam and Eve had sinned, it says that He goes looking for them in the garden. Genesis 3.9, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Uh, the irony is just so clear here. It's like you're playing hide-and-go-seek with a two-year-old, you know, and they're hiding behind the curtain with half their body still sticking out, you know. Like, he knew where they were. It wasn't that he was asking a genuine question like, where are you? I don't know. Um, but he still went after them because that's what kind of God we're dealing with. We're dealing with a God that pursues. Um, he doesn't just leave his creation to waste away into oblivion. He came to seek and to save the lost. That's the God you're dealing with here in the Scriptures. Luke 19, 9 through 11, later on in Luke's Gospel, records another encounter with Jesus where he actually and deals with a specific tax collector named Zacchaeus. He plainly states that his purpose to Zacchaeus, he says, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. It doesn't get any clearer than that what Jesus has come to do. And that's what we can, we've come to expect from God. He is a God who seeks and saves the lost. Every page of the Bible tells the same story. He came to get His people back. It's unmistakable. He literally moved heaven and earth to have the one. He's not an A-plus God. I thought about that. when I, I, The question I had when I was reading this is, why would He leave the 99 to go after the one? That seems stupid. Like, what if you lose some of the 99? But He's not an he's a A-plus God. He's not a 99% perfect God. He's an absolute perfect God. He will stop at nothing to get the one. And it says in this passage, until he finds it. That's clear. Uh, Francis Thompson, an English poet beloved and admired by such people as J.K. Chesterton, Tolkien, even uh, modern people like Stott, um, wrote a famous poem called The Hound of Heaven, describing the pursuit of God upon humanity. He says in the poem, he said, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinth ways of my own mind in the midst of tears. I hid from him, and under running laughter, up vistas hopes I sped, and shot precipitated, adown titanic glooms of chasm fears, from those strong feet that followed, followed after me. But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat, and the voice beat more instant than the feet. All things betray thee who betrayest me. Although Thompson was a follower of Christ, he, uh, he struggled with poverty his whole life. He struggled with poor health, um, even an addiction to opium. Uh, and, a, and in a recent biography called Why I'm a Christian, um, John Stott says that his faith, uh, says this about his faith. He says, Do ultimately neither to the influence of my parents and teachers, nor to my own personal decision to, for, for Christ, but to the hound of heaven. That is due to Jesus Christ himself, 
who pursued me relentlessly even when I was running away from him in order to go my own way. And if it were not for the gracious pursuit of the hound of heaven, I would today be on the scrap heap of wasted and discarded lives. Man, that is all of our stories, whether we acknowledge it or not. If it were not for the hound of heaven coming after you, you would, your life would be on the scrap heap of wasted and discarded lives. The promise found in this passage lies at the root of everything that it means to be a Christian. We serve a God who pursues us. He pursues us, and so we're free to pursue others. He pursues us, and so we're free to pursue a Him. Because He pursues us, we're free to keep forgiving each other. And it changes the way we pray. We know that the God we're talking to is after the lost. The prayers we pray for our family or friends or coworkers that don't know Christ are flavored by this promise. We can pray that the shepherd would be after them. That he would not give up the chase. That his relentless love would cause them to relent. He truly is the author and the sustainer of faith. And we know that because of this passage. He does not give up on his people. Thirdly, the expected celebration. Lastly, we can know uh, his pursuit of fallen humanity has an end in mind. Picking up in verse 5, And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there is, will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons who need no repentance. The shepherd isn't just after the sheep for the sake of finding them. He's after the sheep because it delights him to find them. It's what he loves. It's, it's his cause for great celebration. And Jesus makes clear that that celebration is not found in isolation. It's not just him and the, the sheep. He gathers together the people that are with him. It's people, get, others get swept up into this celebration. And that's the problem with the Pharisees is they have, they have forgotten. They've missed the point. They focus so much on the fact that the tax collectors are unworthy to come and be a part of this than, than the true beauty of, their, of repentance. The thing that they were frustrated by is the thing they should actually have been celebrating. Jesus doesn't always make an explicit parallel between the physical world and what's happening in the heavenly places. This is one of the few times where he, he makes it abundantly clear. You can't miss it. He says in verse 7, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons who need no repentance. There is a greater spiritual reality in play here. There is a spiritual celebration over a repentant sinner. Even just one. That is the main thing. It's as if he's saying, sinners repenting, that's what's important. Not whether or not I associate with them or not, uh, because of course I'm going to associate with things that are lower than me. This whole endeavor is beneath me. There is literally more joy reserved for the lost being found than for those who think they need no repentance. What a backhanded statement Jesus makes there. Uh, He's saying, wake up Pharisees, this repentance is for you too. He doesn't do it impatiently, but it's, it's, it's unmistakable what he's trying to say there. It's those who, who know they need repentance that are the object of this jubilation. 
I heard a pastor say once that what gets celebrated gets repeated. And we might say what is commendable says a lot about what we value. For God, repentant sinners is, is, a, is the cause for celebration. That's what he finds to be commendable. I recently had a friend show me a video that illustrated this point. It's, uh, you may have seen it. It's kind of old, but that's where I am in life. I'm young kids, and I don't ever see anything on social media. So I just found it a year later. Um, it is a video of LeBron James and his son, and uh, his son Bryce. And it's after one of Bryce's basketball games, and LeBron sits down with his son to talk to him about, um, about what had happened. And he was evidently, uh, you know, Bryce, his son, was evidently disappointed in his own performance. Um, and so his dad recalls uh, three plays that really his son, where his son played a role in the team's success. It was a, an offensive rebound that he got and two passes that led to you know, kind of key scores for the team. And he concludes by telling his, his son, he says, you don't need to worry about missing shots or making shots. Um, you played a heck of a game, and I'm proud of you, man. It's got to be unbelievably hard to grow up as the son of the most, you know, one of the best, uh, you know, athletes ever uh, in LeBron James, and let alone to actually play the sport, uh, take up the sport that your dad was so successful at. Um, and I think LeBron knew that. I think he knows that his son is going to, he's under a lot of pressure, and he's probably too hard on himself, and that he needed to tell him he was proud of him. Um, but by listening in on this conversation, we get a glimpse of what LeBron James values. Uh, LeBron chooses to highlight three turning points in the game where his son played a part. Um, he wanted to, his son to see that basketball is bigger than just the stat lines. Making shots or missing shots is what LeBron says. It's about setting your teammates up to be successful too. And it's cool to see LeBron, what LeBron James actually really values um, by the way he talked to his son after the game. Even uh, the fact that he posted the video shows that he's proud of his son's contribution and wanted to share it. This passage is one of those rare instances where we learn f what God celebrates. God celebrates when lost sinners are found. Even one sinner, when they repent, is a cause for great celebration. That's what he finds to be commendable. So this truth that God celebrates over repentance, I think it has major implications on our lives. For one, it's an admonishment to celebrate. Um, not only in this life, but also it is the source of our celebration in the life to come. We celebrate uh, now, but every celebration that we have in this life will come to an end. The party will, uh, I used to have people at my house every week, and I'd, I'd play Closing time by Semisonic. Like, play that, turn that song on, and it's like time to get out. <laughs> uh, every every celebration that we have will come to an end. Um, but the celebration in the life to come, there will be no end. It will be stuck on repeat. It will be celebration after celebration as we recall all the glory that the Lord has done in this life. Um, and it's easy to focus on. The second thing is, um, this truth should convict us that, that we oftentimes lose sight of what the main thing is. It's easy to focus on good things and miss the very best thing. Jesus came to do a lot of things. He, he spoke a lot of words of truth. He healed a lot of people. He ate several meals while he was here in his 30 years. I'm sure he put together some cabinets doing carpentry. Um, he told many stories. But the primary thing that he came to do was to seek and to save the lost. This passage should remind us that of what is important to God, repentance. 
is cause for great celebration in the court of God. Therefore, we need to repent of how we have come out of alignment. We need to ask God to realign our hearts towards what is most important to Him, and that is repentance. Jessica McClure um, went on as a little girl. She ended up meeting George H.W. Bush, which is pretty cool, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing. Uh, she got a doll from Oprah. That's pretty noteworthy. Um, but at the, end of, at the end of things, like, she really, her story has, she went on to live a very extraordinarily ordinary life. Um, she didn't even really know that the thing had ha- that the, this whole ordeal had happened to her until she was watching a documentary as a five-year-old. I don't know why she's watching it at five, but she was, and she was sad for the little girl. And then they were like, "That was you," you know, and uh, <laughs> so <laughs> just kind of crazy. <laughs> um, it's like the first ever like crazy news story, and then yeah. Uh, She's now 33. Uh, she's married. She has two children. They live. She works at the Greenwood Independent Schools in Texas. And um, but the thing about her story is the celebration after this little girl was found has largely been forgotten. Um, unless you were around during that time, you probably don't even remember uh, this story. But one thing that was made clear by this whole ordeal is like the shepherd in the in the passage. Humans made, are made in the image of God, and we will go to great lengths to seek and save that which is lost. We will drop everything and go and try to find that one that's lost. And the reason why is because we serve a God who, is, who pursues the lost. And when they're found, it's a great cause for celebration. Just like they celebrated when they pulled that little girl out of that well um, that's how the Lord rejoices over you. So how should this change us? How does this change our reality for you know, Hope Prez? This, what's it going to do to us this week? A couple things. One, I think we've got to acknowledge our tendency to be like Pharisees. Um, I know it's easy to pick on these you know, Pharisees and, and stuff when you read about them in the Gospels and think, well, they're so misguided. You know? um, but we are just like them. There are grace abusers in our life that we, that we know deep down the Lord loves, but do we really believe that they deserve fellowship just as much as we do? Um, do we believe that they are just as much an object of God's love as we are? I think if we're honest, I, I, I too grumble in my own heart when I see these folks who I feel like abuse the, the grace of God. Um, we've got to remember that we all are grace abusing sinners. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's to admit the fact that what I say I believe and how I live are inconsistent. It's to acknowledge our need for a Savior. Secondly, we've got to to have a place in our theology for Jesus not fitting into our boxes. Uh, yes, he's knowable. You know, yes, we can apprehend him, but there will we literally never can comprehend. Uh, the God we're dealing with. And so I think it's hard for people like us uh, to swallow that, to, to understand that we need that curiosity that those tax collectors and sinners had. Uh, a curiosity of like, I want to know this God that I'm, I'm coming to. Um, and we need, to, to need His help to help us show where we've, our expectations, where we've missed Him. Thirdly, we've got to 
we've got to really live like the visitor is always welcome. That's something that Marshall said since the very beginning of this church, is the visitor is always welcome. And I think that a lot of times we do, but I do think there is a tendency to celebrate on Sundays the 99 that are here and forget the one that's lost. And I think from this passage, we've got to remember that God cares about seeking and saving that which is lost. There is a lot to celebrate in the, amongst the 99 in the flock. But, but we serve a God who cares about the one that's not here. Lastly, I think we need to lighten up. Um, how, uh, how in the world are people going to know that, we, that they serve a God who loves and delights in celebration if we are not a, a group of people that love to celebrate? I was really encouraged by what Marshall said last week um, about celebration. I think we need to be known as a people who like to party. Um, not in the way that the world parties, but it, it, and also not in like a cheesy, like fake happiness, but in a, a true, strange kind of joy that exists when, when people that have been saved are enjoying the celebration that is to come. A joy that people can get swept up into. A joy of people that have been chased and have been found. And the joy of being chased down by a God who absolutely is crazy about us. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the reminder um, that you have pursued us and you love us. And you delight over us. You call together friends and neighbors because that which was lost has been found. The one that you love, the object of your love, has been brought back. Father, would we delight in that? Would we, would we remember our own stories of being brought into the presence of God for the shepherd chasing us down? And if there's anybody here that has not put their faith in Christ as their good shepherd, I pray that hounds of heaven, would you be after them? Would you do that now amongst us? Help us to be a people that celebrate and reflect the character of a God who is immensely joyful. Help us to reflect the joy of people who have been chased down by God who loves them deeply. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.